So I want to talk first of all today about my favorite Stephen King book. I figured I have to start somewhere, so the best place would be to uh, start with my favorite one. I don't think I'm going to go downhill from there because I really like most of his books, but I can work my way from discussing the ones I like the best and have the most to say about all the way to the ones I think maybe aren't so great, and I still have a lot to say about them as well. Um, so hopefully that works for you because that's what's going to happen, and even if it doesn't work for you, then you know listen anyways and maybe you'll learn something or enjoy yourself anyways. First question for today. Uh, and the book I'm going to be talking about right now is The Stand, actually. Um, the first question for today is whether or not a given reader should even read The Stand. Uh, some people believe the story's amazing. Others have said that it drags and can be incredibly dull. Now, when I hear somebody expressing the sentiment that they think that this book is dull, it actually reminds me of a line from a Stephen King short story, um, and actually my least favorite Stephen King short story, uh, which is Sometimes They Come Back. Now, I'm going to get off on a bit of a uh, tangent here when I say that I don't recommend reading this story. Okay, I'm a big fan of Stephen King, and the story is well written, but it's also terrifying for all the wrong reasons. The story's about... You know what, I'm not even going to tell you what it's about. Uh, the line comes as a part of dialogue between a teacher of remedial high school English lit and one of his students, who is a sort of a lackluster, disrespectful, goof-off, uh, rebel-without-a-clue type. And they're discussing a scene from another one of my favorite books, which is William Golding's uh, Lord of the Flies. So the teacher says to the student, do you want to talk about it with the principal? Lawson appeared to think it over. No. Good. Now, can you tell us why Ralph and Jack... I didn't read it. Like it's a dumb book. Jim smiled tightly. Do you now? You want to remember that while you're judging the book, the book is also judging you. Yeah. Judge not, lest you be judged. Let me just say this. The second best thing in the world is a long novel. Okay. The first best thing in the world is a long novel that has no boring parts that you have to grind through to get to the interesting bits. The Stand is my favorite Stephen King book. I think this is true of many other people, and there's a good reason for that. There's relatively few parts of the story that you need to grind through. Yeah, there are some long, detailed passages, descriptions of places and things, and seemingly sort of unrelated people and situations, but the whole thing, the story as a whole, has the potential to keep you captivated because even the minor characters are interesting. So, as an example, uh, here's something that he does about halfway through the book. There's a series of descriptions of people suffering from the second wave effect of the plague which has killed off most of the world. 
For example, a drug addict in Detroit finds an enormous stash of uncut heroin, 98% uh, pure, but he doesn't know it's 98% pure, and he's never used anything that's more than 12% pure. So he injects this drug and dies of a massive overdose almost instantly. A little boy falls down a well, breaks his leg, and dies from shock and hunger. A young mother accidentally locks herself in a commercial meat freezer with the corpses of her husband and child. Although there is no power, she's unable to get out. She's locked in the freezer and she starves to death. A woman tries to shoot a would-be intruder with a gun. The gun is so old and uncared for that it blows up in her hand, killing herself and the intruder. Now, none of these situations are directly related to the plot. There's very little or no background or backstory on any of these characters. But they add a great deal of color to the story, and they are useful for setting the mood for the second half of the book, which involves the survivors of the plague trying to make their way in the world now that it is essentially abandoned and void of the majority of people, but not of dangerous objects and a handful of individuals bent on making life difficult for others. Now, if it seems to you that the story I've just described might be difficult for you to grind through, the stand might not be for you, but I would strongly advise that you give it a shot nonetheless. I will say that there's one section of the book where even the author admits it was starting to get uh, bogged down. The characters find themselves having to extricate themselves from a situation where politics have begun to reemerge and King needed to do something to shake them awake again from their meetings and agendas. But if you find yourself wearied when you come to this part of the book, then rest assured that it does get better again, quite suddenly and, shall we say, explosively. So that's a little bit of an introduction to the book. Actually, I, I, I should probably back up a little bit and give a little bit of a plot synopsis. The basic story is about the US government developing a project which in the book is referred to as Project Blue, which concerns itself with the idea of a shifting antigen virus, which is something that's similar to the, uh, in real life, the AIDS virus, which apparently, and now I should say this, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a professional medical researcher or anything like that, um, so this is purely layman speculation, but from what I understand of the AIDS virus is the, one of the reasons why it's so difficult to deal with uh, or to find a cure is because the AIDS virus does a thing where when the body approaches it with a certain method of dealing with it, the virus, the human immunodeficiency virus, shifts back at the human body and says, no, I'm not that anymore, I'm this. And this is the principle behind the shifting antigen virus in the book, uh, sometimes called the superflu. The way the superflu works is to take advantage of the phenomenon that allows uh, different strains of the flu, of influenza, to come around in real life, um, you may get strain A one year, and then your body develops enough uh, antibodies to recover from it. 
but then you might get a different strain, strain B, the following year, and your body now has to adjust to that and learn to cope with that one, and that's the reason why people can get the flu more than once. The problem in the book is that the strain of the flu that's developed is actually one that in and of itself changes when the body shifts to cope with it, um, therefore wearing out the human body essentially uh, because it can't manufacture antibodies fast enough to deal with the shifting antigen. Um, and that's the reason why at one point uh, one of the characters in the story says uh, the fact that the virus has 99% communicability means that it also has 99% excess mortality, which means that 99% of the people who contract it are going to die. And then, of course, the book goes on to concern itself with what happens to the survivors in the aftermath of the flu. Now, I want to say a couple of things about the different versions of this book. There's actually two different versions of it. Uh, these discussions that I'm having here uh, may or may not assume that you've read the book and that are here to find out what other people think about it or to find out what I think about it rather than coming here to hear what the story is about. The book was originally published in 1978. I read that version maybe once a long time ago. I would have been about five years old when the when that version was published, so it's likely I didn't read it until about 1986 or 1987, soon after I started high school. And it was my understanding that Stephen King was never really satisfied with this version, probably because Doubleday, King's publisher at that time, told him that his original manuscript was way too long and had to be edited down drastically before people would even want to think about reading it. So he did, but I don't think he was ever really happy with what came out of that edition. Truth be told, I actually vaguely recall it being somewhat unsatisfying too. The cover of that version was, was pretty cool though. Um, some of these older editions of the original version of the stand have kind of an unusual image on the cover. It's a man in white wielding a sword locked in combat with sort of a bird-like man figure in black who's wielding what appears to be a scythe or a sickle. Interestingly, the reason why this image is unusual is because although the novel is a basic good versus evil or black versus white fantasy tale which seems to correspond with the image presented on the cover, those specific characters do not appear in the story. It seems as though they're meant to be a symbolic representation of the struggle in the story. Now, I own two copies of this book. One is a newer edition published in the early 90s with the characters of uh, Stu Redman and Franny Goldsmith, who are two of the principal characters in the story. Um, their pictures are on the cover in the forms of the actors that played them in the TV movie which is Gary Sinise and Molly Ringwald, both looking impossibly young. The older edition that I own shows a sort of a sky at sunset with a mountain range at the bottom edge of the page. The face that appears above it is a blend of two images, a man's face and a bird's face. 
And this image may be a reference to the character of Randall Flagg, who is the primary antagonist of this book, as well as actually many other Stephen King stories. And in The Stand, he's a shapeshifter who sometimes appears in the form of a crow, hence the blend of human and bird on the cover. So anyways, somewhere around the late 1980s, King had grown much more popular than he had been at the beginning of his career. And it seems as though he had, in fact become well-known enough that he was able to command much more creative control over his work. And since he had never originally been happy with the 1978 edition, he decided that he was going to have the book reissued with most of the excised material reinserted into the text. Now this became the complete and uncut edition of The Stand. And since it also included a number of updates of specific anachronisms, it quickly became the de facto official edition of the novel, much more popular with the fans. In a 1994 article for Fangoria magazine, writer Bill Warren points out that the miniseries that was created in 1994 was not based on the 1990 expanded version of the novel. It seems to have been based on the original version with occasional updates thrown in for good measure. The miniseries wasn't terrible, but it did feel very rushed, sort of like a Cole's Notes version of the book, and it didn't really give the viewer adequate opportunity to become attached to the characters the way the book does. Also, the series aired on NBC during primetime in the 90s, and I think it had to be somewhat sanitized in order to meet U.S. FCC regulations for broadcast, so it kind of feels a bit too squeaky clean to be as enjoyable as some other adaptations of King's work. So that's pretty much it for this uh, first episode of the podcast. Um, next time... I'm going to start with talking about some specific characters. I'm going to specifically start with the characters of Nadine Cross and Harold Lauder, um, who they are to the story, who they are to each other, because of course they have their own specific, uh, very unusual relationship with each other. And I'm just going to sort of go into the nature of these characters, a bit of character description. And I'm also going to be exploring the question of uh, what should we think about these characters? Not that I'm being uh, prescriptive, um, but I want to give my opinion. I'll tell you what I think of these characters and uh, maybe a little bit what Stephen King thinks that we should take away from these characters as a whole. So that's next time. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this. This is the very first podcast episode I've ever done. I apologize for anything that I got wrong. And also, I hope to, in future um, podcasts, have a better quality microphone. I am aware that the audio quality of this podcast episode wasn't great. I'm using a cheap microphone and I hope to at some point in the future be able to have the use of a better one. So I would say it can only get better from here. 
I'm also hoping to maybe have some background music. Um, I don't think I'll be using sound effects. And I won't try to engineer the audio too much because in my experience, um, even a little bit of excess engineering starts to sound over-engineered and things can quickly go wrong with the audio that are sometimes actually irreparable. Uh, I could go into some stories about that as well, but I won't. At the moment, we'll save that for another time. So in the meantime, insert pithy saying here, and I will uh, see you next time.